Welcome to Double Truck Stories, the home to some of the best features, investigations, and character portraits from across ESPN. I'm Mike Philbrick, your host for the Double Truck Stories podcast. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Nevis Coleman grew up in the violent Inglewood section of Chicago. Gangs and crime were less a cautionary tale and more a way of survival. Despite that, Coleman had managed to avoid some of it, and when he became a father, he seemed to turn his back on all of it. All this was aided by a job his father helped him secure as a greenskeeper for the Chicago White Sox. All that changed the night of April 28, 1994, when the violated body of a woman was found in the basement of his home. With nothing to hide, Coleman left his house and went with police to tell his story. He wouldn't return home for 8,605 days. His journey from prison to freedom and even back to his job with the White Sox was filled with doubt and time. Lots and lots of time. What's next for someone who was issued a written Certificate of Innocence from the state of Illinois? And what of a victim and a family whose search for justice still goes unanswered for a crime with more questions than answers? Stick around after the story from my conversation with ESPN senior writer Wayne Drays as we talk about swimming towards the truth through the murky waters of the law. Now we present Grounds for Return by Wayne Drays. Grounds for Return by Wayne Drays. As he strolls toward the employee entrance at work for the first time in nearly 24 years, Nevis Coleman smiles. He carries a black backpack over his right shoulder a white plastic bag, and a travel mug in his left hand. It's March 26, 2018, a few minutes past 7 a.m. In front of Coleman stands a familiar yet new opportunity and a pair of known faces. Harry Smith and Jerry Poe worked alongside Coleman as members of the Chicago White Sox grounds crew in 1994. They were friends away from the park, playing video games and sharing stories about fatherhood, Coleman with a two-year-old daughter and three-month-old son at the time. But then there was a vicious sexual assault, and a woman left for dead. Coleman went walking to the employee entrance at work for more than two decades. Over those years, Smith and Poe remained constants at the stadium on Chicago's south side. Some 350 miles to the southwest, Coleman lived as Illinois State Prisoner K-58074, sentenced to life in prison plus 30 years after a jury found him guilty of murder and aggravated criminal sexual assault. But this past November, new DNA evidence prompted a judge to overturn Coleman's conviction, freeing him from prison. In March another judge issued a certificate of innocence, wiping the conviction from Coleman's record. Ten days before the White Sox home opener this spring, Coleman was back at the park and back with his old friends. When he arrives at the stadium, when, excuse me, when Coleman arrives at the stadium, Smith wraps his arms around him. What's up, big man? He says with a smile. Out on the field, Smith hands Coleman a White Sox jacket and cap. It's good to welcome you back, Poe says. Now it's official. Coleman looks at the stadium around him. In 24 years, so much has changed. 
The outfield wall and stadium seats, once a bright blue, are now green. That same blue metal batter's eye is now covered in evergreens. A trio of shiny new HD LED video boards hang in left, center, and right fields. And the name has been changed from New Comiskey to U.S. Cellular to Guaranteed Rate Field. Coleman takes it all in. I'm ready, he says. 16 miles to the south, in Section 6, Lot 20, Row 61 of the Burr Oak Cemetery, a handful of dried-out leaves left over from the fall blows across an otherwise innocuous patch of yellow grass. This is the final resting spot for Antoinica Mikey Bridgman. On the evening of April 28, 1994, Coleman found Bridgman's decaying body in the unused basement beneath the home where he lived with his family. A piece of concrete was shoved down Bridgman's throat, a conduit pipe jammed between her legs. Sixteen days earlier, on the eve of her twentieth birthday, Bridgman left a gathering with Coleman and another woman to head home. That was the last time most anyone would see her, until Coleman found her rotting in that basement, wearing the same clothes she had on at the gathering, faded Bill Blast blue jeans, and a satin red bull's jacket with her name embroidered on the chest. Quote, I've done hundreds of murder cases, and this is one of those that's going to stick with me forever, says Brian Sexton, a former assistant state's attorney who tried the case in 1997. Quote, this isn't a feel-good story. You might think this is a story you already know, the White Sox grounds crew member who spent 8,606 days in custody after he says police forced him to confess to the murder he insists he didn't commit. The man who now has his job back and is rebuilding his life after justice was seemingly served. But the story of Nevis Coleman and Mikey Bridgman isn't quite that simple. Murder cases and exonerations rarely are. Six months after Coleman walked out of the Henry C. Hill Correctional Center a free man, two months after receiving his Certificate of Innocence, his exoneration has produced a fresh round of questions and frustrations surrounding the rape and murder of Mikey Bridgman, a case that is now unsolved about a woman who ended up in an unmarked grave. There's a former assistant state's attorney with, quote, no doubt, they got the right guy. There are Chicago cops who refuse to let their families go anywhere near guaranteed rate field while Coleman is working. There's the Bridgman family, which has stayed largely quiet since the case and declined an interview for the story, but expressed through a family friend extreme disappointment in Coleman's release. And then there's Coleman himself, now a 49-year-old brother, father, uncle, grandfather who is finally home. He's a man trying to find his place in this world, wondering with each stranger who walks past whether they know who he is, where he's been, and what it was once alleged that he did. This is the story of Nevis Coleman and Mikey Bridgman, told through the lens of nine distinct places that have defined this case for the past 24 years.
The Coleman Residence, 917 West Garfield Boulevard, April 28th, 1994. On the night Nevis Coleman discovered Mikey Bridgman's body, his older sister Janice was prepping to host a Mary Kay party. A foul smell had permeated the home where the Colemans lived, and Jenny wanted her brother to check it out before her guests arrived. The Coleman's basement was accessible from outside the back of the house. Janice assumed an animal had gotten in and died. Coleman asked a friend who had just gotten out of jail, Michael Barber, to go with him. As they followed the walkway toward the basement door, the smell grew more and more pungent. Coleman and Barber tried to open the door, but it wouldn't budge. They grabbed a flashlight and shined it through a window. That's when they saw the body. Quote, It was just like a figure, somebody lying there, Nevis Coleman told E60. I jumped back. I didn't know who it was. I told my mom to call the police. When police arrived, they pried open the door and found Bridgman lying on the basement floor. Her shirt was lifted up above her chest. Her underwear was around her ankles. A piece of concrete was jammed down her throat. A pipe inserted into her vagina. There was blood almost everywhere. Around the body there were empty beer cans and used condoms. It looked like a junkyard with rusted out bicycle parts, metal fans, discarded ladders, and jugs of paint. Bridgman's body had been decomposing for more than two weeks. Her face barely resembled that of a human. Tiny maggots crawled across her chest. The scene was so disturbing that several police officers vomited on the side of the Coleman's home. Quote, This is one of the most horrific scenes I have ever seen, Sexton says. It sticks with you forever. A medical examiner would later determine Bridgman's official cause of death as suffocation. The piece of concrete was shoved so far down her throat that she couldn't breathe. The medical examiner would find teeth in her stomach and gravel stuck in her vocal cords. At the time in the mid-90s, West Garfield Boulevard, also known as 55th Street, divided the section of Chicago's violent Inglewood neighborhood between two gangs. Bridgman had been a member of the Gangster Disciples. She had switched allegiances to the Vice Lords. Coleman told police he joined the Gangster Disciples when he was 14, but had left the gang before the birth of his daughter, then two. He also had a three-month-old son with another woman, his girlfriend at the time. He had spent the past two years working for the White Sox, a job his dad had helped him land. He said he never missed a day of work. Friends described Bridgman as an entertaining, outgoing, life-of-the-party type. She loved the Chicago Bulls. Her boyfriend at the time, Chester Latham, says she planned to start taking college classes. Now she was dead. Coleman left with police for initial questioning. He told them he didn't know anyone by the name of Antoinica. He had nothing to do with this. The police drove Coleman home. About three hours later... As Coleman tried to fall asleep on his parents' couch, as he so often did, the police returned. Some of the April 11th gathering had told detectives that it was Coleman who left with Bridgman the last time anyone saw her. Quote, They asked that I want to talk to them, Coleman recalls. Yeah, 
because I knew I ain't did anything. So I left. As her brother left, Jenny's Coleman looked below from her bedroom window. It was around midnight. Quote, I was like, Nevist, are you okay? Jenny's recalled. Yeah, yeah, Jenny's. Just go to bed. I'm good. I'll be back. But he didn't come back. That was it. Chicago Police Department, Area 1 Headquarters, 5101 South Wentworth Avenue, April 29th, 1994. At the police headquarters in one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in America, Nevis Coleman sat in a small, windowless interview room, waiting to return home. Police initially did not charge him with anything. There was no lawyer present. But detectives explained they had witnesses who said they saw Coleman walk Bridgman home unlikely the last night of her life. Telling police he didn't know Antonica, that was a lie. Coleman said he didn't know the name Antonica. He only knew her by her nickname, Mikey. Coleman said he walked Bridgman home as far as he safely could that night. He watched her cross the street. Then she turned around and waved. Quote, To me, when you wave like that, it means you're straight. You're safe, Coleman says. He told detectives that he had no idea how she ended up in his basement, but that that had nothing to do with him. After two hours of questions, Coleman says police left him alone for two more hours. Then, as night turned to morning, Coleman said one officer called him a lying-ass nigger. He said another officer punched him on the side of the face twice, sending him into the fetal position. Today, police interviews are generally recorded. That wasn't the case in 1994. Quote, I was up for a long time, and they said, give us a story, Coleman recalls. What story? And then they started feeding it to me. That's how the story became about. They wanted me to say I was there, and they fed me a lie. Because, you know, a lot of things I ain't know nothing about, and they was telling me certain things to say, and I gave a story. Coleman says police, as well as Assistant State's Attorney Hal Garfinkel, told him that if he signed a confession admitting his involvement in the crime, he could go home. Quote, I didn't know, Coleman says. That's what I was looking for, to go home. Coleman gave an initial statement. Around 7 a.m., he was arrested. At 9.57 a.m., Garfinkel interviewed Coleman, and a court reporter documented the statement. For seven minutes, that reporter documented Coleman relaying the following story. He was walking with Bridgman that night when he ran into two other men, Daryl Fulton and Eddie Taylor. Fulton was a convicted rapist, Taylor a convicted murderer. Both men were known gangster disciples. Coleman said he suggested they go to his basement to have sex with Bridgman, who was later determined to have a blood alcohol level between .1 and .3 at the time. All four of them went to the basement, Coleman said in the statement. But after having sex with Taylor and Fulton, Bridgman wouldn't have sex with Coleman, he said. She began to yell that she no longer wanted to be there, and Coleman said he instructed Fulton to put the piece of concrete in her mouth. Taylor then grabbed the pipe, Coleman said, and jammed it between Bridgman's legs. Coleman said he saw Bridgman's body shake violently. Then the three men fled, leaving Bridgman to die. Coleman said he then went to his girlfriend's house. Quote, he trusted them, 
Jenny's Coleman says, and he signed it. Police records show Coleman had been arrested in 1993 for unlawful use of a weapon. He was not charged. In the Bridgman case, Coleman's signature appears at the bottom of all 19 pages of his statement, including page 14, where Garfinkel asks, quote, How have you been tweeted by the police? Coleman's answer, very well. In a private conversation before the court reporter was called into the room, Coleman says, he told Garfinkel that police had cursed and struck him twice. He testified that Garfinkel told him he would take care of that later. Garfinkel, who is now in private practice, declined to speak for the story. But his supervisor at the time, John Muldoon, said, quote, I can't believe if somebody was beaten and Garfinkel knew about it, he wouldn't have told me. There was no upside for Garfinkel to have done what he's accused of doing. Police soon found Fulton and took him to Area 1 headquarters, where he was shown Coleman's confession. He then confessed as well, in his version saying that Bridgman initially refused to have sex with Taylor. After having oral sex with Bridgman, Fulton said in his statement, he served as a lookout while Coleman and Taylor sexually assaulted Bridgman. Fulton also testified that he was mistreated by police, with one officer saying to him, You're lucky I don't take you somewhere and pull a bullet in your brain. The officer also struck Fulton. Quote, That was the last time I saw him, he said. When Coleman was allowed to phone home, Jenny says, he told his family the police had beaten him. Later that afternoon, his father saw him at the police station and would testify that his son's face appeared swollen. But Juliet Ferguson, a lawyer brought to the station to help Coleman, testified later that she didn't see any signs Coleman had been abused. Sexton argued in court that a photograph taken of Coleman at noon, shortly after a statement had been given, also failed to show signs of abuse. Quote, There's absolutely no evidence of that whatsoever, Sexton says. Here's the thing. If it was somebody else, why would they go, you know what, I'm going to pick Nevis Coleman's basement, and we're going to put the body there. It doesn't make sense. A judge granted ESPN's request to view the impounded photo, but Patrick Brown of the Cook County Circuit Court Clerk's Office said the Polaroid in question has been missing since 1998. Quote, There are a lot of people who want to see that piece of evidence, Brown says, but I don't have it. Throughout the years of viewing the transcript, it went missing. Sexton says criminals often confess because they don't understand the law of accountability. Quote, even if you aren't the one actually doing the horrific act, if you're there, you're just as guilty as if you did it yourself. Latham, Bridgman's boyfriend, told police that Taylor had forced a hickey on Bridgman's neck the night the week before. And both Taylor and Fulton had been harassing Bridgman after her change in gang allegiance. Quote, I wanted to go get him, Latham says. I called my friend, do you have a gun? And she was like, no, no, don't do it, baby. I wish now I would have done it. She'd still be alive. Police also questioned Taylor, but he never confessed. All three men were charged with first-degree murder and aggravated criminal sexual assault. Coleman and Fulton faced an additional charge of aggravated kidnapping. The state chose not to pursue a case against Taylor, citing a lack of evidence. But with Coleman's and Fulton's confessions in hand, 
the state would proceed with both murder cases. It would seek the death penalty. State of Illinois, Circuit Court of Cook County, 2650 South California Avenue, July 25th, 1997. For more than three years, Nevis Coleman waited for his day in court, hoping a jury would set him free. His defense argued a lack of physical evidence connecting him to the crime. No fingerprints, DNA, hair fibers, nothing. The state fought back with Coleman's confession and strong circumstantial evidence. Coleman was the last known person to have been seen with Bridgman. Her body was discovered in his basement, in the same clothes she wore when she was with him 17 days earlier. Coleman testified in the motion to suppress his confession. That motion was denied. He did not testify in his defense at the trial. After a day of deliberations, a jury found Coleman guilty on charges of first-degree murder and aggravated criminal sexual assault. A separate jersey, jury found Daryl Fulton guilty as well. Quote, The only thing I thought about was that statement, Coleman says. If I had given that statement, I would have been home a long time ago. Before sentencing, 32 people came forward on Coleman's behalf, hoping to spare his life. There were family, friends, a local pastor, and a pair of familiar faces from Comiskey Park, Harry Smith and Jerry Poe. Coleman smiled at the two men in the courtroom. Quote, when I see them two come up there and speak on my behalf, I was like, you know, that's family, Coleman recalled. Before Cook County Circuit Court Judge Dennis J. Porter sentenced Coleman, he asked Coleman whether he had anything to say. Quote, just to let the victim's family know that I'm sorry for what had happened, he said. Porter did not impose a death penalty, in large part because Coleman had never been convicted of a crime. But he eviscerated the defendant in his closing remarks. Quote, These are the acts of a barbarian, Porter said at the time. I wish I could believe you are sorry about what happened, but quite frankly, I don't think that's true at all. I don't think you care any more about that person and what you did and stepping on a cockroach or an ant and walking out of this building. I think that's the way you are. I don't have any doubt at all that you're guilty of the murder of this woman and the aggravated sexual assault of this woman. Absolutely none. I hope you can live with yourself, because I really doubt that I could, but that's for you. Before Coleman left the courtroom, his brother Lewis stepped behind him. He placed his hand on Nevis' head, Nevis looked up at him. He had one request. Quote, Take care of my babies, he said. Menard Correctional Center, Menard, Illinois, 1999-2017 to 2017. In prison, there were nights when the screaming and yelling would keep Coleman awake. And on the lucky nights when he would fall asleep, he'd sometimes wake up, forget where he was, look around, and endure the punch in the gut all over again. Prison. Two years before transferring to Menard Correctional Center in southern Illinois, Coleman stood in his cell that first night after sentencing and wrapped his fingers around the metal bars that stood between him and freedom. He pulled as hard as he could. The bars didn't budge. He says he still believed the lack of evidence would one day set him free. He refused to lose hope.
but he also began preparing for a stark reality, spending the rest of his life in prison. Coleman says he tried to keep himself, keep to himself, and learn whom he could and couldn't trust. It wasn't all that different from the neighborhood back home. He says he leaned on the strength of his family members who refused to turn their backs on him and would make the six-hour drive to visit, including his son and daughter, who took joy in climbing on Dad's lap and even washing his ears. Quote, We used to feed him food and stuff, says Coleman's daughter, Shaniqua Allen. It got to the point where we would sit there and clean his ears for no reason. He enjoyed it. I didn't show him that I cried, but on the ride home, I just cried to myself because I just want my dad to come home. Coleman thought about retreating from his family, thinking it would make life easier on them, but he couldn't do it. Instead, they became his rock. Quote, if you had no family or anybody behind you, that's when you really erupt, he said. I had my family. His first two years at Stateville Correctional Center in Crest Hill, Illinois, Coleman poured through every detail of his case, studying at the jail library and trying to find a school or attorney who might help. Nothing clicked. The letters went unanswered. He tried to stay positive. While he waited, he kept his mind occupied by working. He helped out in the kitchen and by picking up the grounds. Quote, I always knew that somewhere there's a loophole, he says. We always said it's easy to get yourself in. It's hard getting yourself out. And so you've got to find that little loophole where the mistake was. I didn't know how long it was going to take, but somehow, some way, I knew I'd be out. With each family visit, Coleman would watch his children grow older, and his mom and dad crawl closer to the end of their lives. Coleman's father died in 2003. His mother died six years later. She had been sick, but the family had decided not to tell Coleman. They didn't want to upset him. Then his brother phoned to tell him what had finally happened. Coleman was unable to attend their funerals or even say goodbye. Shaniqua also gave birth to one of three grandchildren while Coleman was in prison. Quote, I was angry because the police took that away from me, Coleman says. They took my mother and my father away from me. They took my uncles, cousins, aunties, my grandmother. They took all that away from me, something I can never get back, you know, and that hurts the most. The night Coleman heard about his mom, he says, he went back to his cell and just lay in his bed, staring at the ceiling. He thought about the good times with his parents and about building some of those same memories with his kids. Then he recommitted himself to finding his freedom. Lovey and Lovey Law Firm, 311 North Aberdeen Street, Chicago, May 2016. In the spring of 2016, a lawyer representing Daryl Fulton reached out to Russell Ainsworth, a lawyer with Lovey and Lovey, and a lecturer with the Exoneration Project at the University of Chicago, suggesting he look into Coleman's case. The Conviction Integrity Unit of the Cook County State's Attorney's Office had agreed to look at Fulton's conviction in the Bridgman case and use updated DNA testing to re-examine several of the items found at the scene. The CIU investigates claims of innocence to determine whether an innocent person has been wrongly convicted. Quote, I remember telling Nevis, if you didn't do it, whatever happens for me, it's going to happen for you, Fulton says. I distinctly remember telling him that. Ainsworth specializes in police brutality, wrongful arrest, and cases with constitutional violations. To him, 
two things stood out. Though Coleman had been arrested in 1993, he had never been convicted of a crime. Quote, it was preposterous to think that Nevis would be charged with his first crime being a horrific rape murder, Ainsworth says. Second, Ainsworth says, some of the officers involved in the case had previously faced accusations of misconduct, including coercing confessions. Coleman waited more than five months for DNA results to gradually trickle in. The scientific precision and accuracy of DNA testing had improved greatly over two decades, but sample after sample came back inconclusive, until a semen sample from Bridgman's underwear that had not been previously tested failed to match Coleman, Fulton, Taylor, or Latham, Bridgman's boyfriend at the time. Ainsworth says it instead matched a serial rapist who had been connected to three other sexual assaults, but now was free. It was a ticket Coleman had been waiting for. Quote, I thought we need to bring these men home, and we needed to bring them home right now, Ainsworth says. In August 2017, Ainsworth filed a petition to vacate Coleman's sentence and conviction. Three months later, Judge Porter, the same judge from Coleman's original case, agreed. On November 20th, 2017, Nevis Coleman walked out of prison a free man. Henry C. Hill Correctional Center, Galesburg, Illinois, November 20th, 2017. As he took his final steps toward the prison door, Nevis Coleman didn't speak. Friends and family eagerly waited across the street, included Janice and Louis, Shaniqua and her daughter, Shania. Before Coleman walked out of the Henry C. Hill Correctional Center, Ainsworth prepared him for his life on the outside. The world moves faster now, Ainsworth explained. It's going to be difficult to express yourself at times. You might wrestle with your emotions and feel disconnected from family and friends. Just know it's all normal. Quote, I wanted to reinforce these things, that they get better with time, and I hoped he would lead a full and happy life, Ainsworth says. But he shouldn't move too quickly. That's how you get in trouble. As Coleman walked to the door and came into the vision of his family, the squeals of delight grew louder. With each step, the emotions spilled out of everyone. Suddenly, Coleman was upon them, wrapping his arms around everyone he could, kissing his granddaughter for the first time. Right there on the side of that road, a family reunited. Quote, seeing my family, grab my grandbaby, a beautiful day, he says. To hold her for the first time, you get that little baby looking back at you, smiling. It was great. Quote, it's like, don't run up on him, but I couldn't do it, Shaniqua says. I ran up there and hugged him so tight, didn't want to let him go. The whole car ride home, I'm laughing and staring at him. Coleman spent Thanksgiving with his family. He thought about a return to the White Sox. He loved a power wash. And in February, his old friend Jerry Poe called with a question. Guaranteed rate field, Chicago. April 5th, 2018. In his first game back with the Chicago White Sox in nearly 24 years, Nevis Coleman hoped for rain. He wanted to roll the tarp onto the field. Instead, Mother Nature offered snow as a barrage of lake effect flurries filled the air for the 2018 White Sox home opener against Detroit. 
Coleman and Long said that if he ever got out of prison, he hoped to get his job back. When he told Ainsworth and the Reverend William Veneco, a priest the Coleman family has long known, they reached out to the organization on his behalf. Quote, It's a win-win for them to have him back, Veneco says. He's a good worker, and to do something to help a guy out who's been through a lot. The White Sox agreed. Poe, now a supervisor, called Coleman to ask whether he wanted to come back and work for the team. Quote, I thought he was joking with me, Coleman says, but he wasn't. After passing a drug test, Coleman was offered his old job back. Now he's a celebrity of sorts, given the attention from his story. It's part of an adjustment from more than two decades in prison to life as a free man. It hasn't been easy. Coleman says he doesn't like sleeping in the confinement of a bedroom, instead preferring the couch. Waiting in lines brings back memories of waiting for food in prison, as Janice found out during an initial trip to the grocery store. Quote, the long lines, he was getting fidgety, and I'm looking like, are you okay, she says. I kept rubbing his shoulders and holding his hand, and I told him, put your hand on the cart, are you okay? And he just said, I have to get used to all these people around me. Coleman refuses to wear anything blue, the color of his prison uniform, for so many years. And after two decades of prison showers, he now loves the comfort of a long bath. Quote, I just want to sit in the tub, you know, he said. He said to teach himself how to text and learn that you can take photos with a cell phone. The first night Coleman stayed with her, Janice says, she woke up to check on her brother. She wanted to make sure it wasn't all a dream. Sure enough, there he was on the couch. That's when Coleman opened his eyes. What are you doing, he said. Janice, startled, asked Nevis whether he needed water. Quote, no, her brother said. I need you to stop hovering over me. Quote, I went back to my room and started crying, Janice says. I just couldn't believe the day had finally come. Embassy Security Group, Mokina, Illinois, May 7th, 2018. When he hears the name Nevis Coleman, Kenneth Boudreaux, Kenneth Boudreaux, excuse me, when he hears the name Nevis Coleman, Kenneth Boudreaux shakes his head in frustration. The retired 28-year Chicago police officer worked as a support detective on Bridgman's murder case and is now one of more than 10 current or former officers named in a lawsuit Ainsworth filed on Coleman's behalf in February. Cook County and the city of Chicago are also defendants. In similar case, cases, Ainsworth says the plaintiff has received between $1 to $2 million for each year of imprisonment, meaning a verdict or settlement for Coleman could potentially exceed $40 million. Boudreaux says the story is all too familiar for him. A suspect is arrested. He confesses. A jury finds him guilty. He says the confession was coerced and walks out of prison. Boudreaux isn't exaggerating, especially in Illinois. Of the 227 prisoners who have been exonerated after false confessions in the United States since 1989, 84 of them are from Illinois. New York is second with 39, according to the National Registry of Exonerations. Law firms such as Lovey and Lovey insist a pressure to solve cases and rampant police misconduct have led to a litany of coerced confessions. The police point the finger right back, asserting it's the law firm's thirsty pursuit of big-money settlements 
that prompts the accused to exaggerate or even fabricate tales of coercion in hopes that doing so could lead to freedom. In a six-part series titled Cops and Confessions in 2001 and 2002, the Chicago Tribune highlighted more than a dozen murder cases in which Boudreaux reportedly obtained confessions, but then either charges were dropped or the defendant was found not guilty. Boudreaux insists he has never threatened, struck, or violated the constitutional rights of anyone, including Coleman. Quote, absolutely not, he says. In the Coleman case, Boudreaux says he spoke to Coleman at the family's home for 15 minutes. He was in the field talking to witnesses while police questioned Coleman. He believes he's been targeted because of his connection to many high-profile cases. He also worked under disgraced former Chicago Police Commander John Burge, who was sentenced to four and a half years for perjury for lying about police torture he oversaw. Boudreaux says none of the claims against him have ever gone to trial. Instead, the city has elected to negotiate settlements, which he says has led to the appearance of a perceived pattern of behavior that now comes up in every lawsuit in which he's named. Quote, It's not just garbage, Boudreaux says. It's a travesty of justice what they're doing to the system. If I'm a man in the penitentiary and I'm sitting there for 30, 40 years, you're damn right I'm going to think of any which way to get out. But now you've got these attorneys involved, and it's not only I'll help you out, but... I'm going to make a couple million dollars doing it. Boudreaux says he was floored when the state issued Coleman a certificate of innocence with nary a fight. He concedes that the new DNA evidence warranted further investigation, perhaps even a new trial, but he doesn't believe it proves Coleman's innocence, as others suggest. Quote, There's factual innocence and there's actual innocence, Boudreaux says. Factual innocence is, factually, I can't prove you're guilty. Actual innocence is where you are actually innocent. And there's nobody here who's actually innocent. Burr Oak Cemetery, Alsip, Illinois, April 13th, 2018. On a recent spring afternoon, as a bitterly cold Chicago winter finally began to thaw, the final resting place of Mikey Bridgman in the northeast corner of Burr Oak Cemetery remained largely overlooked, save for a few leaves blowing past. Chester Latham, now married and living in Iowa, still keeps in touch with the family. He summed up the Bridgman's feelings about Coleman's release succinctly. Total, straight-up bullshit, Latham says. Something is wrong with this picture. Latham understands there isn't DNA evidence directly linking Coleman, Fulton, or Taylor to the murder scene but he can't get over the fact that Coleman was the last person known to have seen her, and Fulton and Taylor had just harassed her weeks before. And the body was found in Coleman's basement. Quote, It's sick, he says. Fucking sick. The case represents the complexities that come with an exoneration, the questions, whispers, and accusations, the lack of trust. Coleman is now free, with a clean record, back working with the White Sox. This summer, Ainsworth expects the state to cut Coleman a check for around $200,000 based on the length of time in prison and his receipt of a certificate of innocence. After that, should he win a verdict or settle a civil case, Coleman likely will become a millionaire. But at what cost? Returning to a normal life isn't as easy as getting a job, running an apartment, 
and picking up where you left off. Not after two decades. Given a certificate of innocence, Sexton says it is extremely unlikely the state would ever attempt to try Coleman a second time for the murder of Mikey Bridgman. Not only might double jeopardy be in play, Ainsworth added, but it would take significant legal gymnastics for a new trial to take place. In this case, there are only a few absolutes. Mikey Bridgman was brutally raped and murdered just about the time she turned 20 years old. Her body was discovered in Nevis Coleman's basement, and the DNA evidence on Bridgman's underwear doesn't match Coleman, Fulton, or Taylor. The biggest mystery surrounds those tiny molecules of DNA and what can and can't be drawn from them. Ainsworth says the semen sample taken from Bridgman's underwear is conclusive and entirely demonstrates that neither his client nor Fulton had anything to do with Bridgman's murder. Boudreaux and Sexton believe that's a stretch. Quote, it just shows that she had recently had sex with somebody else, Sexton says. Robin W. Cotton, the director of Biomedical Forensic Science Program at the Boston University, has testified in more than 200 criminal cases. She says a DNA sample matching someone besides Coleman and Fulton doesn't automatically prove their innocence. But she does understand why the state didn't feel it could retry the case. Quote, Regardless of what they might think, the question is what they can prove, Cotton says. DNA is really good at saying, this DNA came from this person. But how it got there, and when it got there, is not something you can get from the molecule. And that makes a difference. Says Sexton, I don't think we have the wrong guy. I believe then, as I do now, we had the right guy. Do I think he's guilty? Yes, I do. Nevis Coleman says Sexton is wrong. He had nothing to do with the death of Mikey Bridgman, and he has a certificate of innocence that now backs him up. Quote, It's a sad story, Coleman says, but I'm not the one that done it. You know, that guy's still out there. One day, they might get justice, you know, but it wasn't me. Joining me now is ESPN senior writer Wayne Drays. Wayne, thank you for making the time again. Hey, it's great to be here. Uh, thanks for having me. So first off, this piece was so, so fascinating with so many layers. And uh, it was you, the way that you divided it up, it was presented very, very well. So well done on that. I appreciate it. Thanks. And, but um, what I did find from every aspect, no matter what angle you look at this, I found that the reaction to all sides of these uh, sort of speaks very much and encapsulates the climate we live in, meaning no matter what side you are on from that moment in 1994, there is no, there really seems to be no concession of any kind that your original stance may be wrong. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the ultimate pull that makes this uh, such a compelling piece. You know, when we, when we first sort of, you know, heard of Nevis Coleman and the, the team at E60 began working on the story initially, uh, you know, you sort of assume that it's going to be a story about a man who was, you know, wrongfully convicted and 
uh, gets out of prison and DNA proves that he didn't do this and the white Sox give him his job back and isn't this a great thing? Right. And the more and more you report and talk to people and ask questions, you realize it's just simply not that clear cut that there's far more nuance and gray area in all of this. And the next thing you know, you know, you're reporting a piece and wondering on all sides, uh, who's telling the truth, who isn't, what does the evidence say, what does it not say? And I think that exploration uh, is really what makes it a, a fascinating tale. And what it seems that, let's start like with the prosecution, it seems that, and both sides do this, that they take certain scenarios, they take certain like smaller details and sort of like latch onto them as far as, um, you know, when you talk about what well, makes no sense to me, if this person's body was found in your home or uh, what we have discovered is from this DNA evidence that we have discovered that this woman uh, maybe the evidence is not from you, but it meant that she recently had sex with somebody, somebody else. It just seems that there seems to be a complete ability to take any aspect that can be pointed. Well, you're wrong into no, it's actually more the reason of why I can tell you why I'm still right. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, this is the, the crux of our legal system, right? People that make, uh, a lot of money taking small things and turning them into to larger points they want to make. Um, you know, in, in this in this case, um, there is strong circumstantial evidence um, pointing to Nevis Coleman. Right? They find he finds the body in his basement. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mikey is wearing the same clothes she was wearing when he was seen with him 17 days earlier. And the last time she was sort of seen publicly, right? Right. Um, that's, that's very, very, uh, you know, uh, bad uh, circumstantial evidence. Having said that, when you talk about physical evidence, there's no fingerprints. There's no uh, DNA that puts uh, Nevis or the, the, the other gentleman, Daryl Fulton, at the scene. Mm-hmm. And so in the, in the case, you know, the state argued, this is common sense. Use common sense, people. Last, you know, last man that, that she was with, she found in his basement wearing the same clothes, blah, blah, blah. Why would, they, why would somebody put a random body in somebody else's basement? On and on and on. Common sense, he did it. Well, then the defense can say, hey, look, you don't have any proof he was there. Uh, you don't have the physical evidence. You don't have a fingerprint, a hair follicle, anything proving that he was there. Um, also, you know, some people have hypothesized could the body had been moved into the basement. Mm-hmm. There's no signs of any uh, drag marks anywhere on the floor that would do that. So we know this crime happened there. Right. And so, yeah, they, they go back and forth arguing these points to either, you know, uh, free a man um, or, or prove that he's guilty. And also, and the other aspect I thought was a little bit with the whole common sense argument that one only problem, the problem that I have with it is as your story begins, 
And his sister's like, wow, what's that smell? Like, I wonder if like a, like a, a possum or like a something is died in our basement. And he's like, oh, let me check it out. And he's like, whoa, there's a body. Let me call the cops. If he was responsible for that, you think he would might just say, don't worry about it. Or I found it. It was, yeah, it was a cat. And then, you know, be done with it. That, absolutely. And, and here's, and Michael, this is, this is the best point of all, is that every individual who is going to read this story, it reminds me of the, of the Netflix uh, series, Making a Murderer. Mm-hmm. Everybody who reads the story is going to pick up on different details that is going to help them formulate what they believe. And to me, that, that, that makes for a, for, a, for a fascinating tale. In this case, everything you said is absolutely right. However, I would counter that by saying, look, they had smelled this, 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 this putrid smell in the basement right. for three or four days and asked him to go down there, and he didn't go. That day when his sister was like, would you go down there and get it, get, figure out what this is, I got you know friends come over for a, for a cosmetic party or whatever. Yeah. He goes and takes a shower first. Okay. Then before he goes to the basement, he goes and he gets a friend who had just gotten out of jail to uh-huh. go and look now so right. again, that was like, that was the next thing i was going to bring up is right had he done it alone it would have been different right exactly so why you know again these are all all you're trying to draw conclusions from the smallest of details but details that are important and it also but then moving on from from there it's it's part of the thing that frames this also from being on the side of nevis coleman is once you hear DNA now, like we've had, we're now living in an age of where most people that are, would be on any jury or draw any conclusion, live in an age where they, we went from the OJ Simpson trial where Barry Sheck really introduced the country to what DNA evidence means and used it for his advantage to an era of there have been literally thousands of hours of primetime Emmy award-winning television dedicated to we solve this through science and forensics and DNA, and that is ingrained in people's mind. So that is the end-all, be-all that you can hang everything on. And so, therefore, when this DNA question comes up to let somebody out, it seems that the public's first thought is, well, this is the police just saying, Maybe he didn't do this, but he probably did something else. Like, let's tie this up in a bow. The end. And it just seems that, like, is there a little bit of a belief that, like, maybe is there, you know, if you're a police, if you're a first responder, you're dealing with the worst of what you do, what of what society has to offer a lot more than any of us, obviously. So there's the thought then, is this someone, is this, could you just end up being jaded by your jobs and being like, no, this is probably what happened. For sure. I mean, in this case, there's no question that people hear DNA got out of prison and they automatically make that correlation that the DNA proves his innocence. And in this particular story, um, despite what many people say, that's simply not true. It does not 100% prove his innocence. I talked to a uh, forensic DNA expert who's testified in more than 200 cases, one of the most prominent sort of professors of, of, in this area in the country. And she said to me, look, DNA is phenomenal at saying 
this molecule in this garment or under this fingernail matches this human being. Mm -hmm. It does not tell you when that uh, item, that, that, that sample was put there, if you will. And it does not mean that other people were not there as well. So in, so in this case, the DNA sample is taken from Mikey Bridgman's underwear. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it does not match Nevist or Daryl Fulton or the third man who was initially charged and named by the name of Chip Taylor. Mm -hmm. It does not mean that they weren't there. It doesn't right. mean they had, didn't have something else to do with it. Now, having said that, this, this forensic expert also explained to me, hey, look, I understand how that now complicates the case for the state. When they've got the DNA of another man in her underwear, that's very challenging to then say these guys or this guy, somebody else is guilty. Um, and that's where we talk about burden of proof, right? It's one thing to be sort of, there's a quote in the story from a detective, Kenneth Baudreau, who says to me, factual innocence versus actual innocence. What can you prove in a court of law? And, and what's the truth? Right. And, and that's kind of the gray area. And a lot of this is with this DNA, it doesn't unequivocally mean he wasn't there. It just means someone else was involved with her before this crime occurred. Having said that, it, 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 you know, he might not have been there, but the DNA alone does not prove that. Now, what, I guess with, to your point of like what you can prove and what actually happened and the caution of any side of having that in the back of their mind, just like, you know, part of all those CSI shows I mentioned that all have trials with them as well that, you know, that basically state what you just said. So do you think that is leading to like almost a refusal of either side to think in anything less than absolutes? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, I think that's, that's, that's their job in a courtroom. That's an attorney's job is to, is to, is to, like you said earlier, you know, push that evidence uh, as far as they can in the strength of their argument. Um, you know, I, 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 was, I don't remember if it was the, 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 the old JFK movie or what it was, but it was a movie that said, you know, you can get, uh, you know, an expert that'll testify, you know, that an elephant can fly, right? right? Like you can, you can twist things and turn them in any way you want to, sure. to strengthen your argument. So the more that they're able to do that and the more convincing they can do that, certainly that helps. In this case, you know, the, the the DNA expert that I spoke to said to me, she is not at all surprised that the state released Nevist and overturned his conviction given that DNA evidence. That it, that it would be very hard for them to go in a court of law and fight that uh, that fight that evidence and argue that he still is guilty. She said it does not mean he isn't guilty. Again. But she understands where it would be hard to go and try that case with that information. Now, what of the DNA that they did find? Like, what is, like, when I go, when I refer to every, both sides, especially the prosecution, speaking in absolutes or belie or just, is there any pursuit to continue this? To find justice for Mikey? Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I think. You know, um, Russell Ainsworth, who is Nevis attorney, has told us that the DNA sample matches a 
uh, I think a, a, a serial rapist who's been involved in multiple other sexual assaults. Um, apparently he's free now. Uh, we reached out to the state's attorney to ask for their comment on that and what is or isn't being pursued. And they told us, uh, basically they can't, they can't say anything. It's an ongoing right. investigation and they can't say a word, but, but you bring up a great point, Mike, in that, you know, if Nevis Coleman is, is actually innocent and Daryl Fulton is actually innocent and had nothing to do with this, well then there's an unsolved murder that, right. that happened. Or um, even if they were so, there and participated, there's clearly someone else that needs to be spoken exactly, to. Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, to what extent they are or aren't doing that, uh, the state is being very tight, was very tight-lipped with us when we pressed them on that issue. Now, moving on to the post-prison life, as far as uh, Nevis Coleman, uh, yes, he filed a lawsuit against the county, but it seems that um, it seems that the bitterness that that was what always fascinates me with many of these uh, these cases, like by the Innocent Project and whatnot is that it seems that there's more joy that you are out than there is anger that you are ever in. Yeah, absolutely. And and that that is certainly the case in this particular story. And, you know, Nevis told us that he, he did harbor a lot of anger when he was in prison. Um, but once the moment comes that you're free, um, you know, he said it, it, it doesn't do you any good to – to feel that way, to, to carry that with you in your everyday life and that you just want to enjoy the life that you had. Uh, I will tell you, you know, when, when I first started working on this project, I found that to be um, incredibly fascinating. And I really wanted to pursue how you, uh, you know, live your life without that anger, without the, the what ifs and thinking about the days you, you did or, 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 or the days that you missed, right? Missing the death of both your parents and the birth of grandchildren and things like that. Right. How do you, how do you, how are you okay with that? Um, you know, there's no check that you could cut me that I would be okay with that. I mean, I'm still mad at some guy that cut me off two days ago and, that's, <laughs> right. and no one went right. to prison for it. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and, and we talked to some, you know, uh, some psychologists and some sociologists who, you know, told us that, you know, most of the people who are exonerated or when they come out of prison, just when their time is up, really struggle with the adjustment to everyday life. Um, it's hard to get a job. It's hard to kind of get started again. And in this case, there was one, there was one psychologist who said to us, you know, if this is a man who truly doesn't harbor any ill will, he'd be one of the first. Um, but I, but I, but I believe that honestly, and, and it's not just because it sort of fits the narrative, but I think a big part of that is he has a job. Yeah. He has a place where he's providing. He has a massive uh, support he, network. Exactly. Support network. And he has a feeling of, of self-worth and he's contributing and he's back to that. So I could see where, you know, that is creating uh, an environment where maybe the struggles uh, aren't nearly as hard as they as they might be for somebody else. Right. It's like how when when someone says, you know, money isn't everything, the people who say that usually have exactly the amount of money they need. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So Harry Smith and Jerry Poe at the uh, at the his coworkers years ago at the White Sox uh, uh, on the grounds crew, 
they seem to be very much on his side and a supporter of Nevis Coleman, and they seem to be instrumental in making sure that he had that job when he got out. Now, from your interactions or reporting, were the White Sox behind this based on the reputations and track record of two longtime employees, or was it that they followed the case and they believed in Nevis Coleman and they wanted to give him his job back? Yeah, I think it was it was more of the former, and, and not only those two gentlemen, but there was a uh, a priest that the family uh, has known for a long time that reached out to the White Sox. Mm-hmm. Uh, Russell Ainsworth, uh, Nevis' attorney, reached out to the White Sox. There were several people that sort of reached out and and made that argument that they should give him this opportunity back. And then, you know, in early March, when Nevis received this certificate of innocence from the state of Illinois, mm-hmm. essentially uh, erasing all of this from his record, saying that, you know, for all intents and purposes, none of this ever happened. Right. Um, I think that was a, a huge boost for the White Sox to make that decision. I'm, I'm hypothesizing here a little bit, but, but once the state says, look, uh, basically, we apologize, we messed up, here's a certificate and uh, $200,000 uh, on our behalf, Mm-hmm. Well, at that point, uh, there aren't a whole lot of reasons for the White Sox to say no. Um, if anything, like we just talked about previously, it's a way to, to support somebody and help somebody who had been there for you previously, uh, work for you guys, and, and give them a shot to, to rebuild their life. So that's how I think it all kind of happened. A, a lot of public pressure from different people, and then certainly that certificate playing a big role as well. No, that's a good point. Like, into the end. I mean, when you hear about besides Coleman's support network, very few people when they get out of jail, you know, if you do go and you fill out that application, you know, there's that box. Have you ever been convicted of a felony? He actually never has to click check that because when I, they do, I don't believe so. Because when they do the when they do the the background check, it's like nope, not there. Yep. Now, going back to how a little bit to how this happened. um, or really quick about the certificate of innocence. Uh, that's like that to your point. That seems like a very formal process. And part of this mentioned how some people involved that have had history with different cases um, in your reporting were kind of amazed how quickly he was able to get something like that. And do you feel that uh, this said more about the whoever issued it or whoever allowed it to be issued? Does that say more about the flaws in the case, uh, the methods to, or was it sort of, you know, a quest for good, you know, law enforcement PR in Chicago? I, I think it uh, it totally depends on who you ask, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Nevis's uh, attorney, and they would tell you that uh, it was long overdue. It was the least, the absolute least, the state could do. Uh, he's proven that he's innocent. And this is a way to sort of um, start to make that right, what was taken away from him for 23 years. If you talk to uh, the detectives involved in the case, if you talk to the assistant state's attorney who prosecuted the case, you know, 20 years ago, they would tell you the word that was used several times to me was uh, floored, shocked, Mm -hmm. uh, that not only that this was issued, but according to what several of them have told me, uh, the state really did not provide any resistance. Uh, the motion was filed uh, to, to acquire the certificate of innocence, and 
The state did not call any witnesses. They didn't bring back any of the detectives. They just sort of said, okay, uh, we agree to this. And, and, and sort of in, in, in so many words, kind of rubber stamped it in a way. Uh, not that they didn't do an investigation behind the scenes mm-hmm. before they went to court and all that, but at least publicly, there wasn't a whole lot of resistance. And that has not sat well with a lot of the people who were involved in this case, people who, uh, especially those who still believe that, that Nevis uh, was involved, that they were stunned that this was given to him uh, that easily. Now, part of outside of where the body was found, you know, on his property, part of it is that people will look at is he signed a confession. He signed and he initialed every pay, everything in your reporting about how far that went to him to give his statement about what happened. And there's been some, but then there's some questions on the other side of, well, in order to get that, it wasn't very much, it wasn't uh, done a hundred percent above board. Now, Speaking to that is, I mean, did you find that there was in your investigation or reporting, I know people have opinions on either side, that there's any truth to that about like, was he roughed up in the holding cell, like when in the interview room or was he coerced or, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of questions about that. There there are. And and this is another thing where we can take several little details and depending on which side of the fence you stand. Um, twist them in your favor or the opposition can twist it against your favor. You know, in in this case, you know, a a few things. Um, Nevis Coleman brought up uh, that he had been uh, coerced, abused, if you want to say that, struck twice um, that day, right away, Mm -hmm. um, according to him, right? A lot of times you hear uh, prisoners will come up with this later. Uh, well, I, I was, I was coerced. I didn't really, sure. you know what I mean? But, but he brought it up right away. Mm-hmm. Now, having said that, um, and the other thing is this happened at a time where there are several cases in Chicago that the city has settled. There's a former police commander, John Burge, who, uh, was, went, went, went to prison for perjury, for lying, about um, some of his uh, detectives' uh, coercing confessions. So there's an environment, you know, where this was happening once in a while. We'll, we'll put right. it that way. Um, it happened happening that, at times, but not necessarily happening always. But, yeah, go ahead. Right, right. Having said that, on the flip side, okay, well, you have, you know, when, when a defendant, uh, when, when a suspect, I should say, gives a statement, um, they take a Polaroid of him. And they document this to sort of show, you know, what, what, what the prisoner, what, what the suspect, I'm sorry, looks like. Right. Okay. Now, depending on who you ask, in that Polaroid, he looks like he's bruised. He doesn't look like he's bruised. There's also a situation where there was a family friend who was an attorney that came to the police station that afternoon, that night when he had been arrested. And she even testified in court that she didn't see any signs of bruising, mm-hmm. um, that, she, that, that he had been, you know, uh, beaten in any way. And so you, you have this sort of, uh, this, this, this back and forth. The, the gentleman, Hal Garfinkel, from the state's attorney's office, who took uh, Coleman's statement, Coleman says he told him he had been abused, that his statement was coerced. And, and Coleman also added that Garfinkel responded to him We'll take care of that later. Let's just get the statement done now. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, 
Garfinkel's boss at the time, a, a man by the name of John Muldoon, said to us, I don't believe there's any way Hal Garfinkel hears a, a prisoner, I'm sorry, I keep saying a suspect is, is uh, coerced or abused and, and, and wouldn't have brought it to me and wouldn't have done something about it. It's just not who he was. Um, so on and so forth. So again, you, you keep going back and forth depending on, on who you want to believe, what you want to believe. Um, you know, could it have happened? Absolutely. Do we know for sure? Absolutely not. And yet again, it's, it's you know, example, uh, you know, 14C as mm-hmm. to why uh, we don't have a clear answer on, on this. Were you able to see the Polaroid picture? So this is fascinating, right? So we obviously wanted to see it. Um, went through all the proper channels of filing uh, Freedom of Information Acts and going through everything we could and, and had, no, had no luck. And finally, uh, we realized that the photo was in impounded evidence. And so uh, I filed a motion in the Circuit County Court here in Cook County in Chicago, went before uh, Judge Porter, the same judge who tried this case, which was surreal after I had spent <laughs> you know, months pouring through uh, the case and, and what Porter had said throughout the case and so on and so forth, right. um, stood before him, asked to see this photo, explained what we were doing for ESPN, why it was important. He granted the motion. Uh, and so, you know, we're all excited. We're going to get to see this photo and maybe have some clarity in helping the, the readers and viewers understand what may or may not have happened in that room. Uh, I go with my appointment to meet the gentleman in charge of impounded evidence. He shows up with all the photos that we are allowed to see. And he, and he says to me, basically, you want to see the Polaroid with his statement, don't you? And I said, yes, absolutely. Yes, the kind of the only thing I want to see. And he said, uh, that photo's been missing since 1998. And I keep trying to find it, and I don't know where it is. And it's just like, like you get so close to having some, you know, at least, and, and who knows, right? It's a Polaroid from the mid-90s. It might be completely blurred out and gray right. and you can't see anything anyway. But it just felt like you were on the verge of having some sort of a concrete answer that didn't involve one side or the other trying to spin the story in, in their favor. It was, it was a photo that anybody could look at and decide and, 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 and determine uh, an outcome. And, and yet, again, uh, it wasn't there. But it just, yeah, it just seems like this is almost like the Hydra with every question you seem to cut off nine more coming its place. Yeah, totally. Exactly. Which makes for frustrating reporting, but a fascinating story. Agreed. Now, finally, the thing I wanted to ask you about is the family of Mikey Bridgman and, uh, of course, her boyfriend at the time. Um, where, where do they stand with all this? Like what? So they were, they wanted um, absolutely nothing to do with our story from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, I mean, it's, it's, and, and you know, for those who have read the piece, if you haven't read it already, I mean, it is a, it is not a typical murder. She was, she was treated in the most brutal, vicious way possible. Right. Um, you know, people have said to us, uh, you know, Brian Sexton, the state's attorney, assistant state's attorney back then, that in the hundreds of murders that he tried, this was by far uh, the most horrific scene he had ever he had ever seen. Mm-hmm. So they. I think they've done everything they can to kind of put that behind them and, and, and just not deal with it and didn't want to uh, speak with us or speak with anybody to kind of bring those emotions back. Having said that, um, you know, through, through some friends and different people they know, you know, they expressed their disappointment that Nevis, uh, you know, is free now. Chester Latham, her boyfriend at the time, 
who we talked to. Uh, you know, I talked to a couple times, and, and my colleague Willie Weinbaum did as well. Uh, he's he's angry. Um, he thinks it's it's a joke, and he and that's the cleanest language possible I can use to describe <laughs> how he feels about I'm this. Sure. Yeah, and he, you know, and and, and he he talks about. Uh, you know how he felt that some of these guys were harassing her before this, and so on and so forth. And and then when I mentioned the civil suit to him, uh, he really flipped. Yeah. And he said, you know, I got to make sure that the Bridgmans know this is going on because it's one thing to get out of jail; it's another thing for this gentleman to uh, suddenly, you know, come into a couple million dollars, uh, if not more. Um, and so, look, like they. It's hard, right? I mean, 23 years later, it all comes back. It's all being discussed again. It's on, you know, not only our network, but when Nevis got out of prison, it was on TV everywhere. It was in all the papers. This prisoner got out. Mm -hmm. And so I can't imagine what that's like um, for that family. I can't imagine um, not knowing what, what, what happened to her, not having, you know, thinking you had closure, thinking that everything was done, and then, um, you know, having the case in many ways sort of reopened. Um, I just don't know emotionally uh, as a as a parent, as a sibling, you know, as an aunt, uncle, a friend, whatever, how you would how you would deal with that. And that's, I guess, the whole point that I would that I took away from the story that while there are nebulous parts of both sides of this, it seems that both sides are being focused on to the point that people are still forgetting that there is now on the record an unsolved murder of a, yep. of a victim who has actually not received her justice in a way. Yep. And, 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 you know, the, 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 the people who spoke to us who were critical of Nevis. So you're talking about Brian Sexton, the assistant mm-hmm. state's attorney, some of the detectives, all of them, when you ask them, why, why do you want to talk to us? They, they would all say, somebody's got to speak for Mikey. Uh, her, her family's not going to do it. We don't blame them. Right. Um, and, and we can't just let, uh, Nevis and, and his representatives, um, tell their side of the story because we don't believe, um, that's accurate. And someone needs to speak up for a woman who was, who was brutally murdered and can't speak for herself. Well, this was an unbelievably reported and research piece. You guys did a fantastic job. And uh, as this uh, moves forward with potentially, you know, their their third person and the civil suit, I'm sure the story is far from over. Yeah, I, pro- I mean, probably, certainly. I mean, it seems that, uh, by all accounts, you would think that the state will likely uh, settle this case with Nevis like they have many other cases. Um, he will get a, a, a very nice check. Uh, as will the law firm that has worked with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, while, while this is a story that we've paid attention to because of its, you know, tentacles that have reached into the White Sox and, and Major League Baseball, uh, the reality is this is a story that is, is far too common uh, in, in this world. And if you talk to the detectives and you talk to the to the prosecutors, they'll tell you like, this is, this is, this is common. This is happening now. Mm-hmm. Um, both for the good and for the bad, that there are people taking advantage of the system who are getting out of prison that shouldn't. Right. And on the flip side, there are absolutely um, 
all sorts of police misconduct and prisoners and suspects being mistreated who are um, in, in prison with, with, with for no reason, um, finally getting, you know, their day uh, of justice. So, you know, I, I think it's important to, to remember that, you know, while, while, while we might move on to the next game or the next uh, sports event or the next story, that this is real life for these people and real life for so many others all across the country who are uh, dealing with uh, the same thing. Well, excellent work, and we thank you once again for your time, Wayne. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories Podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again, and we'll be back soon with more Double Truck Stories Podcasts.